Great to have you with us here. This is season three, episode eight of Sports Life Balance. I think there's a lot of misconception and, and to this day that if you're going to be in this elite athlete world, then that has to be your sole focus. Actually, that belies some of the research about um, people who keep their stress reduced the most are people that are actually more well-rounded and um, have um, more balance in their lives. They're actually more able to sustain through the ongoing pressures of being an elite athlete. And so one way or another life goes on and and again then we've got choices to make right one of the things that were said a lot during my career was you know you've sacrificed so much and I'm like hell no I didn't sacrifice anything I just made a bunch of decisions based on what I wanted and and the sacrifice suggests that I missed something and um I just had a different life Here's a small dose of perspective from world champion diver and sports performance counselor, Dr. Megan Nyer. I'm John Moffat, and welcome to Sports Life Balance. And as always, I'm glad you're here. Growing up in northeastern Kentucky, Megan realized at an early age that in order for her Olympic dreams to materialize, she had to leave home. So at 16, she found herself in Southern California, training at the legendary Mission Viejo Aquatic Center with the U.S. Olympic coach and the greatest diver of all time, Greg Luganis. Just two years later, she was selected for the 1980 Summer Olympic Diving Team. Unfortunately for Megan, the Moscow Games were boycotted by the United States due to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, a heartbreaking situation that I found myself in as well. Ever determined, Megan rebounded a couple of years later when she became the world champion in the three-meter springboard. Then she became the all-time winningest diver in collegiate history, sweeping all eight springboard competitions in four years. But despite Megan's diving dominance, the Olympics eluded her, just missing spots on both the 1984 and 1988 U.S. teams. Today, Megan draws upon her rich athletic experiences, from the remarkable successes to the crushing disappointments, to passionately enable countless athletes, teams, and organizations to bring about their own world-class performance. <clears throat> so, in the spirit of full disclosure and uh, two-party states, which we both live, you are being recorded, Megan Nyer. <laughs> I, I accept that I am being recorded. Well, I hear, I give you permission, whatever it is you need to need to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. I really thank you for joining me today um, for Sports Life Balance, for my podcast. And you know, not long ago, I was asked, and I'm, I've been asked this many times, is is like, why do I know so many interesting people? And I've often wondered that about myself, and I'm perhaps you've found yourself in the same boat. But I would definitely count you through the years as one of those people on that list. And well, thank you very much. Well, we have a mutual admiration society. I've always thought the world of you and appreciated you and intersecting with you over what 25 30 years now 40 how, how about 40 really long. Oh, oh, yeah. right okay. It's okay oh my you know it's four decades yes yes i know that's that's mildly terrifying <laughs> but anyhow we're still here we're on this side of the dirt so yeah well that's true so let's let's go um let's go to your your background before we knew each other um you grew up in kentucky um mm -hmm. Describe fam the family of active athletes and dancers and swimmers. Yeah, and swimmers and, and water people. 
Well, water was very central to my family's life. I, I could swim before I could walk. And um, it, it just, I, even though it was Kentucky and Northeastern Kentucky, and I grew up on the Howe River, I grew up in Grayson Reservoir, I grew up at Breezeland. Um, I grew, Breezeland was uh, our, you know, public pool, of course, only open from um, May to what August or September right, uh, Labor right. Day, and um, and the YMCA, and so swimming was just um, a part of our legacy heritage. Um, uh, you know, this tiny little town won state high school championships, wow. and so swimming was just um, you know. I remember being at the pool. I just realized a few years ago that Blazer High School was only a four lane pool, but I remember like, you know, the very, very long days of swim meets there right. and all of my siblings swimming. And, and so swimming was very central. Water was very central to my upbringing. Yeah. Similar background for me as well. But how, how did you uh, find diving? How did you, how did that bug bite you? Well, that bug bit me. I, the first bug that bit me was gymnastics. Oh. And so I watched Kathy Rigney uh, in 1968 at the Olympics. And I was like, that's the path, you know, that's where I'm going. And I was, I was on my, I was flipping and twisting um, more than I was walking on my feet. Uh, it, my family took me anywhere and I'm doing round up back handsprings and, mm -hmm. and, um, and, but again, growing up in a small place, um, it, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity and long story short, after about five years gymnastics, my coach had to give up the team for personal reasons and there just weren't any other choices. And so I was very fortunate. We had a fabulous YMCA that I essentially grew up in. And that's where I would do also a lot of gymnastics mm -hmm. and jump tramp and jump trampoline. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> and um and did a lot of gymnastics there <clears throat> but they had a fabulous pool with a one meter and a three meter which was very unusual at that time most pools would have those little dinky awful one meters and these were state-of-the-art duraflex boards on one and three meter so i took a diving class at the ymca because i'm like hey i love gymnastics hey i love water what could go wrong here and yeah. um and so after this six week diving class, he's like, Hey, you know, I think you're, you know, you're, you have some potential and uh, <laughs> you like to come in and uh, continue diving in the evenings. And so I said, sure. Love to. And so that's how it started in little Ashland, Kentucky. And so, I mean, and that's, that's a really a kind of a first life lesson here is that you had the opportunity. You just were born in the right place where you had a, access to a pool and a YMCA that had state-of-the-art diving, uh, diving boards, et cetera. Um, but the, the thing that is on you is that you decided to go for it, right? You, yes. you decided you were, gonna, you were going to see where you could take this. And that's always the first step toward achieving success, correct? Absolutely. Uh, I don't know how it was for you, but all I know is it was truly like bit by a bug and, and it happened in gymnastics. And I was like, that's where I'm going. And when I was 12 years old and my gymnastics um, teacher, my gymnastics coach had to give up the team. Um, I was asked actually to move away and train. And this is when I was 12. So this is 1974. And and at that time, moving away from your family, you know, straight out of the womb was just not an end thing. And, and even though it would have only been to Cincinnati, Ohio, my parents are like, yeah, that's mm. not happening. And, and so I was like, 
you know, what now? And so diving just, it just materialized. And so I was like, oh, well, cool. I love these two things. So this is even better. Um, I love the water. I love to flip and twist. And so, okay, let's do it this way. And so I don't remember choosing it. It kind of chose, chose me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can, I can certainly relate. Um, it's all part of trying to find yourself, but you, um, a few years later, after you had the opportunity to leave home, you took it to the next step, which was, um, moving to mm-hmm. the aquatics mecca of the world at the time, which is Mission Viejo. Mm-hmm. Um, Mission Viejo, California, back in the 70s and the 80s, was a big deal. What made you make that drastic move? I mean, you were still young. Mm-hmm. When, I was, <clears throat> when I was 14 and 15, I went down to Ron O'Brien's diving camp, which was in Decatur, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was 14, actually... This was 1976, and my coach, Joe Suriano, uh, took me to the Olympic trials. They were in Knoxville, Tennessee, at University oh. of Tennessee. And so here's Greg Luganis and, and Jenny Chandler and um, Tim Moore and Kent Bossler and, and all the people. And so I was not a participant there because at that point, I was actually only diving one meter. Um, and I, I it, it just, that's when I was like, okay, it's official. Yeah. And, um, and I spent probably three weeks at Ron's camp in Decatur, but he wasn't around because he was actually training his uh, training, the elite athletes. And so all of his assistant coaches were coaching the camp members. So, so all, although I met him in Knoxville, you know, hello, you know, like he met lots of kids. Um, he did not really see me dive that summer. And Mm. so, well, just also to put it in context for listeners is that Ron O'Brien back then was at the top of his game. He would go on to coach many, many, many Olympians. Eight-time Olympic and um, coach. Eight-time Olympic coach. So yes, this guy, this guy was the top dog for recruiting talent in the United States to Team USA. Yes, at that time he was uh, the head coach of Ohio State University. Columbus, Ohio was about two and a half hours away from my house. And then <clears throat> and in the summer when I was 15, went back to Decatur, spent multiple weeks at Ron's camp there where he saw me dive because he was coaching um, the campers. And he said, I think you have a lot of talent actually to be fair, what he said to me is he said, I think you're one of the most talented divers I've ever seen. And he, like my eyes kind of went bugged out of my head because here was the guy who had just coached Jenny Chandler to an Olympic gold yeah. medal in um, the year before in 1976. And, and, and he said, and he knew at that time that he was going to be moving to Mission Viejo the following year. And he said, so I would like to invite you to come out there and train and so um so I call up my parents and say hey Ron wants me to move to Michigan California that he's going out there and he's gonna be at this mecca program out in Southern California and they're like what you know <laughs> so <laughs> so it probably took me four or five months and it actually was my next oldest brother because I'm the youngest of five it was my next oldest brother Steve who I think my parent, well, my parents apparently sat down with him and said, well, what do you think? Do we let her go? Mm. And he's like, 
you know, she's kind of outgrown it here. I mean, there were wonderful reasons. I mean, I loved growing up in Ashland, Kentucky. It was, uh, you know, small community, thriving metropolis of 30,000 people um, at the time. Um, and it was, um, but the opportunity, if I wanted to, to take it to the next level, I had to leave. Yeah. And, and, and that sounds that sounds extreme, I think, to many people that are not familiar with um, elite athletics and international athletics, is to pull up your roots and actually move to where the the best training is. Um, but within our world, it's not that unique, and it's something that's done, and it's oftentimes a necessary sacrifice for those athletes who might live in a place that doesn't have the resources, the coaching, the facilities. Etc. So it's it's not really um, that unique of a thing. So you found yourself in Mission Viejo. What was your living situation like? You were still a you're still a girl. <laughs> yeah, I'm still a girl. Uh, three days after my 16th birthday, uh, packed up my bags. Um, you know, got my driver's license on my 16th birthday. Um, uh, packed up my bags and got on a plane. Uh, arrived in LAX into the arms of people I had never met. <clears throat> so at Mission Viejo, a, a lot of um, people uh, became host families, and I, um, two of their sons, the Hobbs, Ruthie and Hartzell Hobbs, two of their sons had been divers with Sammy Lee, wow, um, who coached Greg Luganis, um before Ron moved to California. And, and is an Olympic gold medalist in 50-something. 48 and 52. 48-52, okay. Yeah, on platform, first Asian American, actually, uh, gold medalist for the United States. And um, so, so Ron and Sammy were working on finding host families for all of us who were moving to, to Mission Viejo. And so I literally had never met these people other than on the phone. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like it is today where you can get on Zoom or FaceTime right, or, right. And, and meet the people and all of this. Mm -hmm. And um, I drove home to Mission Viejo and that began um, the journey and the Hobbs, I, 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 I can't say enough about just what an amazing family they were and just they had had three sons and so I was the daughter they never had wow. and, and they were both just really wonderful, supportive people to the, to, well, they're, they both passed away in 2020. It was actually, we got a bang, bang um, in terms of them passing away, but I was their, that kid, they, that daughter they never had. And so again, I had, an, I had three more older brothers and um, who are all out of the house at this point. And so they were just extraordinary. And, you know, they would come to the meets. And what I was about to say is to this day, Ruthie couldn't tell you the difference between a front dive and a back dive. Um, <laughs> she was like, oh, that was nice. You know, <laughs> that was lovely. And um, so they were just really kind, sane, wonderful human beings that um housed a few of us actually mm -hmm. um and and so i couldn't have been more fortunate if it it just felt like a divine choice right so right i was very fortunate you're 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 building your village in southern california uh, yeah. and i guess this was the first step and of course we, you mentioned ron o'brien being the mm -hmm. head uh coach then of the mission viejo diving team but there was also this guy named Greg Luganis that was yeah, there, that who, who is the greatest diver, undisputed greatest diver in history. What was that like? 
training with somebody like that? Um, it was just remarkable. But also at that time, Jenny Chandler was there. Mm. Jenny Chandler, Olympic gold medalist in 76. So Greg had won silver in 76 on platform. And um, and uh, so Jenny was out there too. And so Jenny, um, I had met, I think when I was 14 or 15 down in Decatur, Alabama, she's an Alabama girl. And, mm -hmm. and so she was training with Ron at that time. And um, so I have this really old picture of Jenny and I together and Jenny was just, she was this beautiful woman. And then just, she was just this iconic diver and gorgeous and tall and long and lithe and gorgeous. and. Um, and then Greg Leganis. And so Greg's pretty shy. Mm -hmm. And, um, but he was very um, kind. He was very kind to all of us. He had no ego whatsoever. I mean, just like he, he was just, he was nice. He was sort of quietly funny once you got to know him. And, um, and uh, he's probably the sole reason I ever got my behind off a 10 meter platform um, because really? I was terrified. Yeah, I was terrified. I was terrified of heights. Like I dived one meter for two years before I ever got on a three meter. So Joe Suriani Suriano taught me my three meter list. Uh huh. And then I moved to California and then actually I was out there for about a year before I tried diving platform and I was like, I just couldn't handle it. And I was overwhelmed. And Ron said, well, let's just table that and let's, you know, get you going on springboard. And, and so in the summer of 79, I started diving platform. With the help and of I, Greg, you mentioned. Yes, because I, I, I was up on the 10 meter and I was going to do a front one and a half, which is not a hard dive and except except if you're terrified, everything is hard. Well, 10 meters yeah. is really, really high. As a swimmer, I mean, I, <laughs> like we used to go off the 10 meter, right? I mean, you know, a million swimmers like, hey, take me up on the platform and we go off. But let me tell you, it's really high when you're up there. It yes. is It is the def very definition of leap of faith. And then when you hit the water, it's hard. It is hard. So Water is not polite when you're hitting it at 35 miles an hour. So, um, so indeed, uh, I, my terrorism was justified. Um, but nonetheless, some people are bigger thrill seekers than I am. And I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, hey, let's jump out of a perfectly good plane. And so that was not, <laughs> you know, I... <laughs> Uh, so it was not my thing. And um, so I'm on the back of the platform with my arms wrapped around the railing, <laughs> crying, bawling, like, I'm going to die this for one and a half. And Greg um, sat down beside me. Like at this point, this guy's the reigning world champion on platform. And, and he just sat down beside me, put his arm around me and said, you're going to be okay. Oh. And he said, just jump it stuck. And what that means is, is, um, uh, slow the rotation down because then you can always kind of break and pull it in at the very end if you're not rotating right. enough. But if you, but if you kind of like wing the rotation and go too fast then you're in deep trouble. So I said, jump it stuck. And that's mm. what I did. And, and, and I survived. And so <laughs> Uh, he uh, was responsible for counting me off the platform more times than I can tell you during this adventure of learning platform. Wow. And, and there's a number of extraordinary things about that story, but fast forward a year or so later, and you made the 1980 Olympic team. We'll talk about the implications of that in a second, but you made the 1980 Olympic team in the, I believe it was the one meter or three meter 
three meter, the three and, meter 10 meter. and 10 meter, which mm-hmm. was really unprecedented, I believe, for women back then and still today, correct, to to specialize in the springboard and then also make the team in the platform. Yeah, especially since I only diving platform for a year. Yeah. And um, but if there are the benefits of being terror terrorized by something is you're very thoughtful with every time you go off of it. Mm -hmm. um, And so again, my gymnastics background platform is actually easier to master if fear is not a big presence for you because because the springboard moves, the platform is solid. So the platform is more amenable to people with gymnastics background because they're used to solid surfaces. Wow. And And thanks. And thanks to Greg. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, actually. And um, thanks to Greg and um, and thanks to my other, I had other teammates too, right. who were like, okay, we're going to live, you know. Well, your village. It's it's like, <laughs> this village. is this is so important in, mm-hmm. not only in sports, of course, is your support network, but just in life, right? Absolutely. It's, it's it, that carries on in, in try, seeking out those people and being open to those people and them them being receptive to your openness. That is such an important thing throughout life and something that you and I were blessed with learning early on. Very Uh, much so. Uh, It was that village that made me great. And that was that village that supported me to be great. And um, to this day, really my best friends are these elite athletes and, and, um, and whether or not they achieve their final aspirations or not, we all get together and, at the risk of sounding disrespectful to our military veterans, we were kind of war buddies, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we were freezing to death at times in Southern California. Contrary to popular belief, it doesn't, it's not always sunny and warm. <laughs> um, so, and sometimes the wind was blowing 20, 30 miles an hour and you're standing on your tippy toes on the end of a platform and wet. yeah, wet, cold, freaked out. And, um, and and if you and if you wiped out, it was really, really, really going to hurt. Yeah. And so these people, you know, this when we all get back together, it's like we get into the war stories, right? Of our mm-hmm. respective um, the 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 demands of of being an elite athlete. Absolutely, absolutely, and and that's that's definitely um, one of the magical things about having the experience of being an elite athlete and traveling internationally with with a team of, of world-class fellow athletes. But w- another, uh, something that was the byproduct of the 1980 Olympic team, of course, was the boycott. Mm-hmm. Um, just to remind the listeners, the boycott, Jimmy Carter basically said that he will not support sending an Olympic, U.S. Olympic team to the, to the Moscow because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. I don't want to get too much in the history of it, but you personally, um, how did the boycott affect you? Well, John, I was 18. And while it was really, it was very shocking and disappointing. And I'm like, how can this be? I, cause the, the, our Olympic committee, the United States Olympic committee, um, was the only Olympic committee in the world at that point and still to date, um, or the, our government does not fund our athletes. Right. And so, so how could our government take away this opportunity? We'll be right back with Megan in a minute. 
I want to let you know about our partner, Roka. I've been wearing their industry-leading wetsuits and goggles and swimsuits for a long time. But Roka also makes state-of-the-art eyeglasses and sunglasses, and they're designed for those of us who like to push boundaries physically and want to look good doing it. I know this firsthand because I own a few pairs myself, and they are extremely light, and they won't slip off my face no matter what. And if you need prescription glasses like I do, you can try them on at home. Roka will send you your choice of four frames and then order your favorite and give Roka your prescription. It's that simple. So go to roka.com, that's R-O-K-A.com, and enter code SLB, as in Sports Life Balance. That's just three letters, S-L-B, to save 20% on all of your orders. And that's for anything on their website. Have fun. Hope you've enjoyed the show. You're back listening to Sports Life Balance. So how could our government take away this opportunity? And my parents footed my bill. The, our government did not foot my bill for right. being an elite athlete. I mean, if my family, if I hadn't come from a reasonably well-to-do family, my dreams would have gone glug, glug, glug. Right. And so, um, so uh, it just, it made no sense to me. Nope. And I had been to Russia the year before. And even though we were in the height of the Cold War in 1979, um, that was my first trip out of the country. So my first trip out of the country was a dual meet with the Russians mm-hmm. um, in Tbilisi, Russia. And 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 the Russian athletes were wonderful yeah. to us. And we became friends. We and, did. And so that was the first time I had ever step foot on foreign soil and we were treated incredibly well and they were nice and and you know they could actually speak english and i couldn't speak like russian (laughs) um but but that was my first opportunity to go wow you know this whole political thing is really kind of a mess but these people are pretty awesome um but there's also just a, a profound life lesson that all of us have to grapple with when it comes to the boycott. Um, and, and for you, what, what, how did that life lesson manifest itself? Well, it was certainly my first super grand lesson. And there's just, there are things in the universe you don't have any control over. You can, you can work the system. You can do what you, you're quote supposed to do, right. You can do everything right. And, and you don't get the back end of what you did everything right about. And so just that fundamental concept that there are things in the universe we don't have any control over. Right. Right. And we will talk a little bit more about that in, in a bit, but Absolutely, that it's it's something you know. We were both teenagers, and it, it's it's something that we just had to deal with and move on. But we were young, um, and and we had 1984 to look forward to. Um, I remember specifically. Let's talk about Guayaquil, Ecuador, and World Championships. And I remember that um, the diving team, and the synchro team, and the swimming team. We were. We were tra- we traveled together quite a bit. We were in buses together, and I remember mm-hmm. specifically. I believe it was on the way to the opening ceremony, being on a bus with you and and, and getting to to know um, you better. But talk about just a, a just a, a magical time where these friendships, lifelong friendships, uh, were formed and forged. Well, um, 
I, I, I always had an affinity for swimmers and, um, in 1982, that was after, that was after my freshman year at university of Florida and my best friend in the world already at that point, um, was Jeff Cabarino. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he was a swimmer at university of Florida. He was partially responsible for recruiting me there. And, um, so we were just, we became brother and sister the minute I stepped on, on the pool deck and, and in high school, I had dated a swimmer. And, mm. um, so again, but it's high school at Mission Viejo was Jesse Visayo and, um, Brian Goodell yep. and, 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 you know, these were all people who were, uh, world, um, record holder swimmers and, and, um, my boyfriend who was, um, he was a distance swimmer and said, you know, the way he kept entertained during those ridiculously long training sessions was watching me dive uh, <laughs> uh, in the pool over. And um, so he was a really wonderful support system. So swimming, I just had this very natural affinity. And, um, and so, and then I went to the University of Florida and Craig Beardsley and, and these amazing swimmers are there and Tracy Hawkins. Oh, by the way, so yeah, oh, by the way, me, uh, who uh, got to be with the, the best uh, male diver in the history of the sport and then wound up on the team of the best female swimmer in the history of the sport and, and just furthered my love for this sport of swimming because she was just just like Greg was poetry in motion to watch, mm -hmm. Tracy Hawkins was poetry in motion in the water. A absolutely. And and had she, she's an example, her and Sippy Woodhead mm -hmm. are two mm -hmm. examples of female swimmers whose achievement could very well have rivaled the likes of Katie Ledecky and things like that. Absolutely. And they just, they just missed their opportunity. There's countless athletes um, all, of all sports who fall into that category. But these are all amazing people and amazing swimmers. You also became world champion in, yes. in Guayaquil, Ecuador, which I remember specifically, mm -hmm. which is like world champion. Seriously, that, mm -hmm. is, that is extraordinary by any measure. Yeah. Um, you know, and at that time, our world championships were kind of the Olympics, right? Because in 80, the whole world wasn't together. In 84, the whole world wasn't together. It wasn't, it was from 76 to 88 before the, the whole world was back together because the boycotts in 80 and 84. And right. so it was really, you know, more indicative of who really was the best in the world at that time, right? It was a true test. Yes. International test without boundaries. Yeah. Right. Hmm. right. Well, how, how did, how did you becoming world champion at, if I do the math correctly, you were about 20 ish. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, how, how does that affect the trajectory of your diving career. You're, so we all know that you have these big victories and, but you know, very soon after you're back on it, you are freezing, you are training hard again, and it's just you. Um, I, I think anytime you talk to athletes who go through those big pinnacle moments, it, there is, it's like the air comes out of the, the bubble, right. Or out of the balloon. Mm -hmm. And and you kind of um, lose your sense of, um, it's like a planet off its axis, right? And you're kind of going, okay, now what? And, and the other part of that is, um, I hate to admit this, but um, winning the world championships, I didn't dive my absolute best. And 
And so I'm standing on the award stand going, well, crap, I kind of missed my back two and a half, you know, and never mind, they're putting a gold medal around my neck. Right. I'm like, dang, I, you know, that wasn't enough. I didn't, you know, yes, I won the world championships, but I didn't do well enough. And but you're, so, that's, that's just, you're just putting a lot of pressure on yourself. I mean, right? Yes. Um I'm in a very exacting sport. I'm in a very like, and I had a very exacting coach. And so it was not difficult to get spun up and um, extreme high precision and perfectionism because quote 10 was perfect. Right. Mm-hmm. That was the goal. And, and not that 10 happened a lot, but eight and a halves happened, nines happened, right. nine and a halves happened. And, and so, um, so, you start focusing too much of the focus becomes on um, what you didn't want to have happen instead of what you do want to have happen. And, um, and so it it became the, the, the first, as I started accumulating all of these gold medals where it really wasn't about the gold medal, it was about the performance and how was the performance and, and how, because I got out of every single meet, and said, "How can I do that better?" Mm-hmm. Which is which is natural for an athlete, sure. but not in an extreme. Hmm. Maybe I, it I, is in an extreme. You know what? We're all pretty. We're all we were all pretty extreme. Um, wh- what are do you ever say? I swam fast enough. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. You can never. So, I, yes, I, I, I definitely take that back. Um, <laughs> Well, you, in diving and swimming are in very, very different sports. People think, oh, it's, you know, are you a diver too? I've been asked that dozens of times. And, and, and the fact of the matter is they're two entirely different s- sports. Um, swimming, of course, being objective, time, you touch the wall first, plain and simple. Uh, diving is a judge sport. What are some of the difficulties that you were met with um, with regard to diving? Well, anytime there's judging their subjectivity. Mm-hmm. And so part of the landscape of diving was it's an aesthetic sport. And I, I hit the scene when there was a major transition in the sport of diving from this kind of like the tall, long lift flowy kind of dives to the more gymnastic dives. And so I could do lots of flips and twists. I'm five foot two. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm built um, muscularly and I was entering diving in the era at the end of that area era of that long and lith um, kind of thing. And so there was a body stereotype right. that it took, it was, there was a real lag period between moving from that, that ideal body type into the more ideal body type of being able to flip and twist more. And um, so diving spawned a lot of eating disorders and Mm. because we were told to be at specific weights and we were weighed in and, and, um, and so, um, again, it comes back to, you're not enough or you're, you're not, you know, you don't meet the image and you have to be thinner because even when you stand on the board, the impression begins. Mm. Mm. Yeah. There's, um, Certainly, a lot of athletes, female for the most part, but not entirely exclusive to female, um, that struggle with with those things and their weight and their image and 
and it's still oh. it's it's still alive and well today. Uh, sadly, um, and and I and swimming too. Swimming, there was a lot of pressure on the female swimmers, um, particularly to to be thinner. And again, again, we're talking late seventies, early eighties. This whole concept of bulimia was not even um, conscious. It yeah. just, it just, it didn't really. I mean, I read my first book on it probably in nineteen eighty three, and um, and I just don't think the coaches were aware, um, of the pressure and the impact, um, because it just wasn't being talked about. Yeah. And, and yes, I, I, I'm, look, I'm married to a, a, an athlete, division one athlete. My daughter's a division one. I am, I, I've become acutely aware of that. And it probably started toward the end of my career where I, I really started realizing the impact to, uh, predominantly the female team. Let's let's um, let's scoot forward a little bit here. You were training. We, you know, you won world championships, but we all know the eye is on the pro- your eyes on the prize, which is which is the Olympics, eighty four, Los Angeles mm-hmm. um, trials in nineteen eighty four. Uh, describe the Olympic diving trials for you as it's truly. You, I believe you would consider yourself like as a favorite, correct? Oh, absolutely. And so I was the reigning world champion because at that point, um, world championships only occurred every four years. So I was the reigning world champion. It was going to be in LA, um, which is up the street for Mission Viejo. And um, so, you know, all primed and set to go win the Olympics and, and achieve that lifelong goal at this point. And um on springboard, uh, I missed one dive. I missed one dive and that's, you just don't get to do that. It's like, you know, uh, not getting the right start off the blocks mm-hmm. or that flip turn, or, I mean, in your sport, it's nanoseconds. Right. Yep. And, um, and in my sport, it, you just, you have to, you have to hit all your dives and, um, and I missed one dive. And so I was still, I was diving platform at that point, but at that point um, I was struggling a lot because I had started having shoulder problems and, um, and I was still terrorized on platform, quite frankly, mm-hmm. I, it was never my thing. I was very, I was very happy on springboard and not happy on platform. And so I, I didn't make the team on 10 meter either. Oh. And so that was, um, yeah, that was a pretty seminal point in my career of, okay, um, now what? So, so, so what, now what, what, what did you, what did you do? How did you deal with that immense disappointment? Which by the way, is anyone who has gone through the gauntlet of, uh, competing in the Olympic trials has seen it many, 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 many times. Uh, people who are the favorites, Craig Beardsley, you mentioned is, is, is just one of them, your teammate who didn't make 84 in swimming. Um, I, I mean, I call it, there's blood in the water that, mm-hmm. that it's just heartbreak is everywhere, everywhere. Well, I felt like I had let my coach down, let my mm-hmm. team down, let my country down, let my family down. And of course completely let me down. And so I felt like just a monumental failure. And, and so, um, you know, prior to this, I had had multiple deaths in my life. And, and one of the things that was not good during the time of um, my elite career is much attention paid to 
um, to us as complete whole human beings, right. right? And there wasn't, I mean, life skills and, you know, like the life skills program from the NCAA was kind of in its nascent, the very beginning of it. And, and, um, and it just, we weren't talking about athletes as whole people. We weren't supporting them as whole people. Um, and I, I particularly having my father pass away, um, uh, was just really devastating to me. And then I had multiple family deaths and a close friend death and, and I just, and then the 82, I won the world championships and, and it kind of didn't really feel very fulfilling. Um, and so actually I was kind of struggled between 82 and 84, but I was just like, kept the hammer down. Right. You just, Which, you just yeah. suck it up, keep going. Right. Which is what we, what we did. That's just, that's just athlete, athlete mindset and what, and what athlete, athlete expectations were, are and were back then for sure. Um, so, well, what did you do to, to, for self-care? How did you heal? What did you, what did you have to do in your life? Well, I, um, I, I quit diving. Um, that summer, um, I was living in Mission Viejo and, um, and Jeff Gabarino, my best friend from college, um, was on the 800 free relay and, um, and down in Mission Viejo, there was a cycling events. And so the, uh, actually the only events I saw in 1984, um, was, I just went and stood on corners to watch some of the cycling right. and because I just, I couldn't go to the diving. I mean, that's like watching somebody in bed with, you know, the person you love yeah. and, and somebody else in bed. And I was just like, I, I'm just like, I, I just was um, mortified, devastated, um, crushed. And so I couldn't go watch the diving. And, um, and so I spent a little bit of time with Jeff and his family because Jeff, a lot of Jeff's family came out and, we did some things together, but I still didn't even watch the swimming, which I, you know, again, love swimming and, but I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And, um, and so, um, so I just, I took the rest of the summer off and, um, and then that fall, actually, I didn't go back to school. I, um, I traveled around, spent some time with my family. Mm -hmm. Um, I hadn't really spent any protracted period of time with my family since I left home in 1978 and, um, and spent some time with friends and, and, um, did that stuff that quote normal people do. Yeah. Um, A a NARP, you used that acronym, a NARP, a non-athlete, regular person. That's right. Well, that's the language now these uh-uh. days. Um, I, I when I, I work a lot with athletes, and I tell them the most important people they'll have in their lives, other than their teammates, is going to be their NARP friends. Go get some NARPs, you know, so so that you have a complete picture of life. And um, and so that's actually um, a, a more recent um, terminology that I've picked up from yeah, my, the kids I work with. Our, and, our, uh, our daughter uses that term. Right. <laughs> and she was bragging after she retired from volleyball. I'm a NARP. <laughs> well, <clears throat> so you, in essence, became a NARP, non-athlete, regular person, and were able to experience the, that life as uh, out, outside of the pool. Um, what did you find? 
Well, um, I, I found that the world actually didn't stop spinning because I didn't go to the Olympics and, and I would have not known that until that time. And I learned that um, performance and health don't have to be mutually exclusive things, right? And everybody assumes that elite athletes are super healthy, super fit. And I don't know about you, but in my experience, that wasn't necessarily always the case. And, um, and so I really embarked on my journey of, um, taking care of my health and paying attention to my fitness, not for the purposes of diving, but for mm -hmm. the purposes of being a human being. And my college coach was really great. Kent Bossler. He mm -hmm. was really great with that. And, um, and he, from the very beginning, from the time I walked on the bull deck, um, our relationship was a partnership and, and he helped me learn about what it is to be a complete human being yeah. and put a lot of emphasis on fitness for the purposes of your health, not for the purposes of diving. And so, you know, when I was around my friends, because I always valued having NARP friends and, um, chose them. And, um, but when I was around them and they, we would go to parties um, they would quickly introduce me as this is Megan Nyer, you know, my world champion Olympic mm -hmm. friend. And I pulled them aside and finally said, stop doing that. Yeah. Stop, you know, just say, Hey, this is Megan Nyer. And if they know me, then fine. Right. And if they don't, then yippee. And so my goal became how long can I have a conversation with new people that I meet without them knowing about my athletic background? Right. Um, it became like, okay, who am I in this room if I'm not Megan and I are the diver? And what I learned is, again, the world isn't going to stop spinning because I didn't get to achieve what I had thought my destiny was in the universe and my worth in the universe, not just my destiny, but uh, my worth to the universe. And I found out that that's just not the case. And, and, um, and so that year was a time of, um, uh, like reconstruction and integration. Mm -hmm. And, and I had decided if I was going to come back to diving, I was, it was going to be something I enjoyed. And so I wanted to complete my senior year. Right. I just, I felt, I felt like, okay, I just, this is the chapter I need to, to complete. And, um, and my college coach was super, um, kind and patient. Um, <laughs> the very first diving practice, I, we, we dive on dry land boards and into, um, foam pits right. and, um, and, uh, we had worked out prior. We had been doing, we had done weights or stadiums or something. And anyhow, my, my legs were tired because, you know, I hadn't really trained as an athlete yep. for over for a year at this point. And, um, and I, <laughs> And I walked down the diving board and my knees buckled out oh. and I face planted on the diving board. <laughs> oh, no. I'm bloody, you know, scraping my, you know, scraping the diving board out of my legs. And my coach just started laughing. Goes, oh my God, Megan, I knew this was going to be a project, but I didn't realize I was going to teach you how to walk too. And so I'm just breaking down laughing and crying and not crying because I was hurt, but crying because I felt like an idiot and, and it pretty darn funny. But well, anyhow, it was, it was probably a healthy dose of humble pie that was, all of us can use from, from time to time. But you were also a healthier Megan as you were coming back and with your perspective. Um, I, I, want, I would like to note that you did finish out your college career in the four years that you were competing. 
an extraordinary career, eight NC2A titles, which is like you basically, I'm not, not even basically, you swept the one meter and the three meter every single one of those four years. Yes. And that's a record that still stands, even though platform is now an event. There's 12 potential opportunities, right, at the NCAAs now, but it's still a record that stands. And so I feel pretty proud of that. Yeah, you, as, as, as you should. And um, so you finished up in 1986, but you decided at some point along the line that you were going to pursue the 88 Olympics that were that year being held in Seoul, Korea. Well, at this point, um, Ron O'Brien had moved to um, South Florida. He left Mission Viejo and um, moved to another opportunity at a place called Mission Bay um, in South Florida. And um, so, which was a whole lot better for me because it's down the street from University of Florida. I mean, five hours down the street, Mm -hmm. but nonetheless, better than across the country. So it was easier for me to go and train down there. And at that point, I wasn't even sure whether Ron still wanted to train me because at this point I had said, I am not diving platform, you know, like, forget it. I hate it. It's terrorism to me. I don't, you know, everybody would say you don't put your eggs all in one basket and, and, you know, everybody pays attention to platform. Nobody pays attention to springboard. And I'm like, I don't care. I hate <laughs> platform. I might be super talented, but I'm terrorized and it just wasn't fun. And so my commitment to myself was um, I was going to enjoy the process. And I think those last two years of my diving career, again, still diving with Greg Laganis and Greg had his share of his struggles Mm -hmm. and um, off the diving board. And we were really good friends. And I think I've never laughed more in my life. Um, than I did during those two years, Greg, because Greg just has this wicked sense of humor. And there were times Ron would have to say to us, okay, you guys, you know, (laughs) shut up, get serious. You know, we're here training and practice, but, and then Kent Ferguson also was there. And so we were just this little trio and, and I, I really enjoyed the process of training. I, um, felt more peaceful about myself as a human being and realized diving was something I did, not something I was. It was about what I was capable of mm-hmm. and, and pushing my own envelope. It became less about anything having to do with anything, anybody else. And so I think like with any, the evolution of anybody from young to older, if you will, is um, you're, you quit doing things for other people. And not that I was diving for anyone else because I pretty was, I was, you know, it just, I had to do it. Um, but I wasn't so worried about what my parents thought or, um, or what anybody thought. Fast forward to 88 as, as me, I trained for 88 as well. Did not make the team. You did not make the team. Um, it's a, it's a familiar saga, Within mm-hmm. the within the world of, of sports, but you didn't you didn't make the 1988 team. And as with me, it was time that you kind of face your transition out of sport mm-hmm. and into real life. And um, it, it's it's uh, it's a difficult time for an athlete, but any athlete um, for some more than others. But tell me about your transition into into real life. Well, I would call it the next life because um, what we did was real. It just was um, 
it was just, I, I would say the next life. Well, between 86 and 88, I had graduated in, in 86 from undergraduate school. Um, and then I started graduate school. The, the purpose, that the reason I chose my profession is because I wanted to be that person in the universe that helped all these athletes with their careers, with all elements of their career. They're not just their pursuit of their own excellence, but being a complete human being. And so, and I, I think um, it was a very interesting time because I'm experiencing my life as an athlete, but I'm also experiencing it as um, a professional who's Mm -hmm. learning and getting very observational about the experience. And so during that time was when I really started paying a lot of attention to systems. And I had just a remarkable professor, uh, professor, Dr. Pete Sherrard, who was just a master in um, systems thinking. And so I started thinking about the entire system and how it comes together and enables people to actualize um, their goals or what were the barriers within systems that prevent people from um, achieving what they want to achieve. And so that two years really informed um, a lot of my professional um, future in terms of how I thought about it. And, and so it was interesting because I would be in meets and I'd be like going, being the diver. And then I would be the observer of the diver. And then I'd be the observer of the diver on the system. And, and I've times had to go, okay, time out, Megan, quit thinking about this on, you know, four different levels. We got to just go up there and do the dive, you know? Right. uh, Right. Well, and, and you went on, you you went on to get your PhD and correct me if I'm wrong, but your PhD was in counseling specializing in performance and health psychology, correct? Correct. Correct. One of your areas of interest is, is you're interested in grief and loss. Um, and, and this topic of course applies just as much to regular people as it does to athletes. So give me a brief overview. What about grief and loss, uh, when it comes to you and how you apply that now to your, to your clients and their mental health? Well, John, um, you and I have um, both probably had innumerable conversations with our uh, elite athlete friends who went through this transition at one time or another, this transition from being an elite athlete into whatever the next life was for any of them. And a very consistent theme is just like, what now? Right. And, um, that, that there is a, no matter, even if you know what you want to do, there's that, just that vast emptiness that like, I'm not that anymore. And since so many of us developed our identities around being an elite athlete, it's really learning, um, again, who you are and the benefit again, of that year that I took off is that I, I had that opportunity to figure that out before mm-hmm. I, I really ended my career. And so in 88, while it was a disappointment, it didn't devastate me. It was, it was not like the 84 experience. Right. Yeah. And, and I was like, well, I'm going back to grad school and that's what I'm doing. And, and, um, so, um, <clears throat> so I think, um, we're a society in general that does not, to this day, does not um, really acknowledge this subject a great deal. We aren't good with death. I mean, everything 
uh, around us from a social standpoint is how do you avoid getting older and dying? And how do you avoid, you know, just, we don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. We don't acknowledge that this is like the end fate for all of us. Right. I mean, none of us is getting out of this gig alive. And, um, and so, and, and also acknowledging loss of all kinds and, um, like, um, breakups and, and careers ending. And, um, I just think we kind of need a primer about it because I think one of the very isolating things when, when you are talking to people about death or loss is, um, most people don't know what to say. And right. while they might mean well, they often say a lot of the wrong things and which is just more isolating and uh, more depressing yeah. to people going through loss and, and grief. And so I'm writing a primer about this. I'm like, okay, you know, here's your little primer. And if, you know, you're experiencing grief or um, uh, loss um, of any kind, then, you know, for it, for yourself or, you know, someone is here you go, because here's the little, here's the little primer. Here's the little cheat sheet, if you will, on what to say and what not to say and what it's about. And um, I talk, uh, I, I'm just having been through a lot of loss in my life. Um, I talk about grief muggings. Um, it's like you're going along and you think you're kind of fine. And then all of a sudden you sort of find yourself almost figuratively face down on the, on the floor, um, feeling like something just mugged you from behind. Mm-hmm. And then you just, this amazing, this overwhelming swell of just sadness and grief and, and kind of learning how to ride that wave and, and learning how to like, you know, some days you to ride the wave and sometimes the wave rides you and either way, you got to figure out how to get back on the board. And, and, um, so I just think it's a, it's an important topic to talk more about and, and help people through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. And it's something that all of us, um, have to deal with pretty much. It's a constant throughout our lives, whether it be a failure, whether it be, you know, a loss of a spouse or, um, a divorce or, or, or what have you, it's, it's, it's something that, that all of us need to deal with. So it's something I commend you for exploring that further and using your experience to to really kind of try to understand that. Well, um, and injuries as well. Yeah. And we've both been through that, right? And um, loss of function. Right, right. And all of us will experience that as we age. Hopefully mm-hmm. we age relatively gracefully. Moving moving on to, to 2020 and the pandemic. You, um, during the height of the pandemic, you wrote a letter, an open letter, which mm-hmm. I, I read back then to Olympic and Paralympic hopefuls about the postponement of the um, Tokyo Games. Mm-hmm. Um, it's truly a beautiful guide um, to help them cope with their delayed dreams as as you have had to deal with personally as well. What What's really the impetus? Why did you decide to do that? Well, I... I, when they announced the postponement of the games, well, the first thing I was like, it's not a cancellation. Okay. So they're not gonna, so while it might not work for everybody, it might still work for some of them, right? They might still have that opportunity. Um, And I did it because I just felt this overwhelming sense of just heartbreak for these people who um, this might've um, meant the end of their career, even though the games were going to be another year, it, sometimes in the elite world, that's a lifetime and a, a year 
can you might have been sort of at close to the end of your career already and hanging on another year was not feasible psychologically, physically, emotionally, financially, in all ways. And it might have marked the end of people's career. And right. it's just, again, um, we didn't have any control over this. This is a worldwide, yeah. we didn't have any control over this, right? Yeah. And um, so I wanted to talk to them about grieving. I wanted to talk to them about all that they had learned if this really was the end of the road for them. Um, I wanted to talk to them about how to be resilient in the, in, in the face of this. And, and so that's why I wrote that letter. Yeah. And, and, um, specifically some of the topics that you tackled directly, um, I, I, I've obviously reread it and it's, it's quite applicable to everyone in all forms of, you know, not just pandemic times, but all, all different times in, in life. And, and some of the, some of the topics that you tackled are, you, you mentioned a little bit early. A, a few minutes ago that we can't control all things mm-hmm. just like the 1980 boycott we we can't control all things so i i came up with megan's three rules and in general it doesn't matter whether you're a surgeon whether you're an athlete whether you're a farmer whether you're a mother a father a student um uh, a CEO, whatever you are in your lives, these three rules can apply to everyone. And, and rule number one is energy follows your thoughts. Mm-hmm. So whatever you're thinking about your energy follows there. And um, rule number two, focus on what you do want, not what you don't want. I hear so many people talking to me and saying, well, I don't want to false start. I don't want to miss my wall. I don't want to breathe in and out of the turn. I don't want to smack on the dive. I don't want to blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what's the do? My question to them is always, what's the do? And I say it that way, even though it's not proper grammar, because I want to get their attention. What's the do? Tell me what you do want to do mm-hmm. and start getting people to turn around this. I don't, I don't, I don't, because the brain just, you know, the body just follows the brain. Go back to number one and watch your thoughts. And so you want to focus on the do. So what is the do? Um, because that ke- keeps you in the process of um, something you have control over. <laughs> right. And, um, and the third one is um, focus on the process or things you have control over. Um, because a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, a lot of um, energy gets wasted on focusing on all these things we don't have control over. Well, we don't have control over a pandemic, this thing getting unleashed for whatever reason and however it emerged doesn't make any, to some degree, doesn't make any difference. What matters is what are we going to do now? Yeah. And how are we going to be resilient through this? And so one of my close friends and colleagues, uh, Dr. Linda Hoops has just done some amazing work on resilience. And it's not just about bouncing back. It's about, you know, building resilience muscles and, and, and how do you deal with disruption? And so um, fortunately I've spent a lot of time with her and took a lot of what she talks about um, and uh, applied it during that time and, and worked with groups of athletes virtually and helped them make it through this period of time when their lives are halted, right? They're like, can you imagine? I mean, I, I, to this day, can't imagine going back to being 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old and, and, and dealing with that. Right. Um, yeah. I, I mean, just like, wow, not a clue. And, um, so fortunately we're in the age of the internet and, um, there were workarounds, but there, 
tapping one of those muscles is experimenting in creativity and um, connection. How do we connect? How do we stay connected during this time of profound disconnection? And and so really getting organized, um, figuring out, okay, this is super weird. Um, but we had, you know, what were our options? We had to figure it out. Right. Right. And it's, yes, it's, it's certainly tested all of our, our resilience, not just athletes, but everyone. Absolutely. One of the other topics that you brought up in this open letter to the, um, the Olympic and Paralympic hopefuls in 2020 during the pandemic was also that we, our brains as humans, we assign meaning (laughs) to almost everything. That's cautionary. You use it as kind of a cautionary tale, but what do, what do you mean by that? Um, we're meaning making machines. Things happen and then we we decide what it means. And so if I were to ask you the question um, to fill in the blank on this open statement, you know, everything happens. How would you likely answer that question? Yeah, right. It's the natural thing is for a reason, right? Because right. we, all, we right. all want things. We all want things that if we're suffering, we want it to be for a reason. Correct. And so, and, and again, that gets into a, a, a spiritual realm and belief system that, you know, it may be accurate, but the way I say it is everything happens and we give it a reason. Mm, and true. so I'm not saying anybody is wrong if they say everything happens for a reason. But what I am saying for sure that I know is right is everything happens and we give it a reason. So we are just meaning making machines. We yeah. just run around making meaning out of everything because it's the way um, as humans, we can live in our worlds, right? We, we assign meaning. And then um, after we assign meaning, we decide what the behavior is going to be after that. And so kind of figuring out what meaning you're making out of it. You you wrap up the 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 letter with that look, life goes on. Well again, it kind of comes back to what's the next thing. Um I think there's a lot of misconception and, and to this day that if you're going to be in this elite world, then that, that has to be your sole focus. Actually that belies some of the research about um, people who keep their stress reduced the most are people that are actually more well-rounded and have, have those NARPs in their lives. Yeah, right. right. And, um, and, um, uh, have, um, more balance in their lives. They're actually more able to sustain through the ongoing pressures of being an elite athlete. And so, um, and so one way or another life goes on. And, and again, then we've got choices to make, right. Mm-hmm. I am not a big, um, one of the questions I got asked or or one of the things that were said a lot during my career was, you know, you've sacrificed so much. And I'm like, hell no, I didn't sacrifice anything. I just made a bunch of decisions based on what I wanted. And, and the sacrifice suggests that I missed something. And, um, I just had a different life. I just, and it was just in sometimes magical and sometimes catastrophic and other times uh, uh, amazing and uh, wondrous. And I, but it was just different. You know, let's, let's wrap up with going back to, we talked a, a lot about our community four decades ago, three decades, whatever. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that many of us have, have kept in close contact and those that we haven't necessarily kept in close contact there's some familiarity where you can just pick up where you left off you and i would fall into that mm-hmm. category where mm-hmm. where honestly we could just talk for hours and hours and hours like like we used to 
we just pick up where right. we left off. And I want to, I want to, we, we've, we've mentioned Craig Beardsley a couple of different times. Uh, Craig Beardsley, as I said earlier, is, has become one of my best friends. I think that friendship in many ways has been forged because of the 1980 boycott and because of, of that shared mourning. Um, Glenn Mills is another person that, that falls into that category, but some magic happened and he, it was announced a, a little bit ago that he is being inducted in the International Hall of Fame. And just to talk about the strength of this, of this community, I mean, there's people that are rallying together because he is the symbol of, of, you know, this disappointment of the 1980 Olympic boycott there. I, I would venture to say there are going to be dozens of people there. To support him, to watch mm-hmm. him being inducted in in, in Fort Lauderdale, um, and and to celebrate with him. That's who we are. That's right. That's right. Um, to the, I, I'm would suspect you have the same experience. Like we might have been um, major rivals, but we're all we have we have that shared experience, and and um, and we're good friends. And if it weren't for those people who are our major rivals, we wouldn't have been as good as we were. And, and that shared experience and that shared history. And, um, and I'm thrilled for Craig. Craig went to University of Florida. I've known Craig for a very, very long time. And I'm going to be one of those people who is there because I'm, um, he's another one of those people. I've had this heartbreak conversation about 1980 and, and, um, and just how impactful that was. And he's world record holder and world champion and, and just an amazing person. So I'm thrilled because um, I know that, you know, the swimming um, community is much larger and there's lots of Olympic medalists, Olympic gold medalists. And so I'm thrilled for him that he gets this honor, which is not usually bestowed on people who don't have that Olympic hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um I'm I'm really excited that this the community came together and and made this happen. Well, I look forward to celebrating in person with you. Um, yes. Uh, just to 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 leave off, you wrote me a wonderful note. You've written me a couple wonderful notes in the in the past few days, just in in sort of preparation and, and thinking about our conversation today. Um, and in your in your letter, you wrote something that I want you to clarify for me, and that you wrote that you believe that international sports can save the world. What do you mean by that, Megan? What I mean by that, John, uh, is that from the time I stepped on international soil in 1979 into a country that the United States was having major conflict with, we were high to the Cold War, um, All I've met athletes from all from all over the world. Um, I was very fortunate to have traveled all over the world. And I tell you what, the world gets super small when you do that. And there is such a collective sense of humanity and that we all just want to be happy and healthy and have our families happy and healthy and have opportunity. And, you know, we're lucky we live in a country where, you know, we can pretty much get clean water. Mm-hmm. Well, most of us and, um, you know, it just, we are fortunate in that way. And, um, but it didn't matter. The political affiliation didn't matter a damn at the end of the day to the athletes. Um, we became friends with everyone through this shared experience, through this shared community, through this, through, um, and, 
And right now, um, you see so many people helping the Ukrainian athletes, but but also our community is is um, supporting the Russian athletes. It's not their fault. Their president has gone around the bend and made these decisions, right? And so. I don't hate any country. I don't hate any set of people. Um, the world is small. Humans are incredibly similar. And um, and so if you really want to solve this problem, um, tap into the international sports community because we'll figure it out. Right, right. Yeah, it's, 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 it's easy to be, um, to consider a faceless country an enemy. It's much different when you're talking to them and you're sharing the same space and the same, you know, and you're sharing thoughts with each other. And that's, that's what I find. And that, that was one of the magic things that, that was, um, that was imprinted upon me from, from an early age. Well, Megan, thank you so much. Thank you, John. For spending time. And, And most of all, thank you for continuing to share our life's journey, life's journeys together that we started somewhere more than 40 years ago. Seems amazing, and I am eternally grateful. I always appreciated you um, from the minute I met you and have cherished our um, conversations over the course of those four decades and um, look forward to um, the continued journey. Absolutely. Thank you again. Thank you. Megan has asked me to leave you with a quote from the ancient Chinese philosopher and writer Lao Tzu. Back in the 4th century BCE, he wrote this about psychological flexibility. Water is fluid, soft, and yielding. But water will wear away rock, which is rigid and cannot yield. As a rule, whatever is fluid, soft, and yielding will overcome whatever is rigid and hard. This is another paradox. What is soft is strong. Thank you for joining Megan Nyer and me here on Sports Life Balance. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us your five-star review and do me a favor and tell a friend. Bye-bye for now. Don't forget to join us next week for more Sports Life Balance.